you want to be a comic? It's not as easy as we make it look. But that's because Mutiny Radio has eight hours a week of open mic stage time for all your comedy workout needs. Strain those improv muscles every Sunday from four to six at Getting Sketchy with David Stolowitz. Press out those new jokes every Monday, six to eight on Joke Workshop with four-minute sets and four-minute critiques from everyone. Get positive by host Pam Benjamin. Pump those dick jokes every Thursday, seven to nine with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THC. You want more open mics? Fridays, six to eight. Happy hour with guest host and George D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew. Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother. work and take a seat at Asiento, a great place to meet friends, have delicious tapas and drinks, and relax with your neighbors. Located at Bryant and 21st Street in the Deep Mission, Kitty Corner Block from Mutiny Radio. Come and get a drink during the comedy festival and enjoy happy hour pricing all night long with your festival ticket. A great neighborhood bar. Come take a seat at Asiento. The Roxy Theater is San Francisco's favorite nonprofit art house cinema, bringing you the best, coolest, weirdest, most thought provoking movies of the past, present, and future. Hands down, there is no better way to get your film fix than at this legendary historic theater. Visit www.roxy.com. That's www.roxie.com today for showtimes and tickets. Everybody should listen to Muni Radio at muniradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. All right.
And this is for all the mamas at the border whose kids are being taken from them. The most profound relationship, the most profound relationship we have in society, even though old bitch Thatcher said society doesn't exist. <laughs> Wouldn't she be happy? Here it is. Mamas and kids.
good morning to you, <clears throat> laborers and lovers. This is The Bee, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm on your search engine. Labor and Love Radio, brought to you by Mutiny Radio every Saturday morning from 10 to 12 a.m. 10 a.m. to 12 we explore the past, present, and future of the labor movement and the lives of working people. A show where we tell you if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. They're going to have you for lunch. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And good morning. Happy Saturday to you. Had hope you had a good week filled with good work. And our show today, see what we got. How about the nurses striking for Vermont? How about La Marseillaise, the revolutionary song of France? People who celebrate, today celebrate Bastille Day. The great Upheaval, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 in July. We're celebrating that anniversary. The day the American labor movement woke up and saw it. Rebuilding unions after Janice from labor Working class history. What people like you have achieved in the past. And what we can achieve together. Just heard this morning. Well, the last one we heard was Blues from Mom. That song is for all the mothers. All the mothers. Every. For that in the mood, and we kicked off with the prophets of rage. Top band headed by Chuck D. Agatha, 
Chuck D. Tom Morello. Uh, they're they're prophets of rage. It's time to get mad, everybody. Quote unquote, fair minded. Trying to quote unquote, listen to the opposition. The minute they feel any kind of slight, they scream bloody murder for their rights. How they're being wronged by horrible progressive liberals. They don't care about morality. They care about their side winning. It's time to get mad. Time to just say, well, look, there are more of us than there are of you, so we're just going to take it. Okay, let's listen to our yearly, our worldwide. Radio Labor. Okay, Radio Labor brings together labor events and news from all over the world. And this is the July 9th version. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, July 13th, 2018. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, the American labor movement says it is on the march against right-wing attacks. Unionists are at the UN discussing sustainable development goals on topics such as climate change. The Labor Start report on union events around the world and singing, How Can We Let This Go On? This is Radio Labor. In the United States, the labor movement has been hit by a series of blows by the country's Supreme Court. But according to the AFL-CIO, the largest labor federation in the U.S., unions are well positioned to fight back. The latest judicial attack on unions is the Janus case, named for a frontman for right-wing billionaires like the Koch brothers. The Janus case removed the right of labor organizations to charge non-union employees in the workplace a fair fee to help cover the costs of the negotiations that benefit those employees. However, the president of the AFL-CIO, Richard Trunka, says that the American labor movement is energized and marching for working people. He spoke at a recent conference on organizing workers into unions. This is a, a very exciting time. Uh, something good is happening in America. Collective action right now is on the rise. Working people are marching, we're striking, we're organizing, and we are refusing to accept business as usual or the old you can't do it thing. This is a moment of great opportunity for the labor movement and for our nation. Collective action is what we do. It's who we are. Uh, and it's the surest path to broad, shared prosperity. See, for, for decades, corporations have tried to keep us weak, 
and keep us divided. They've rigged the, the economic rules. They've come after our union. They've pitted worker against worker. Uh, the Janus Supreme Court case is just the latest example of all of that. Uh, that wrong-headed, despicable decision wasn't the will of working people. Remember, Janus was solicited by Justice Samuel Alito, and it was bankrupt, a uh, bankrupt, bankrupt is right, uh, bankrolled by the Koch brothers. Uh, it was up to them. If they had their way, workers would have no rights at all, none whatsoever. Unfortunately, President Trump's new Supreme Court nominee is more of the same. It will tilt a court that is the most in favor of rich elite and corporations. In the history of the court, this is the most favorable to the rich, the elite, and corporation, and this appointment will make it even more so. But look, we're not gonna let the rich and the powerful dictate the American story. Working people are paving our own way, right? We've never looked to Washington to validate uh, our movement. We've never relied on politicians or the court uh, for our strength. We've always known that our power lies in the solidarity of working people. See, our power lies in the hundreds of thousands of workers that are carrying a new union card. Three quarters of them, by the way, are under the age of 35. We organized 265,000 new members last year, and 75% are under the age of 35. And it also lies in the tens of millions more who would vote to join a union today if given the opportunity. See, our power lies in workers who are standing together, marching together, fighting together in communities all across this country, in every region and in every sector, arms locked in unflinching solidarity. That's our power. And we're unleashing it with a passion and a precision that I haven't seen in decades. In New York, hundreds of people, including many trade unionists, are attending a global conference to discuss the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. The forum started on Monday, July 9th and runs to the 18th. The UN's Sustainable Development Goals focus on 17 sectors such as ending extreme poverty, fighting inequality, and fixing climate change. Theo Morrissey, the communications officer for the Trade Union Development Cooperation Network, interviewed two of the unionists at the UN conference. Rosa Pavanelli is the General Secretary of Public Services International. The PSI represents public service unions around the world. PSI has been uh, involved uh, since the beginning uh, in the process of uh, sustainable development goals as we do believe that this should be the right way to address inequality around the world. We all know that inequalities has grown uh, in the past uh, 10 years and injustice as well. Uh, we need to fight the root causes of these inequalities and the Sustainable Development Goals can represent a good approach. 
However, we need to say that uh, the work uh, to tackle the issue of inequality has to be continued because it's not identifying the 17 SDGs nor identifying the indicators that we can feel sure that uh, the root causes of injustice and inequality and poverty will be addressed. This is why PSI continue to work on the issue of sustainable development goals, specifically those uh, that are very much close to the work that we do and the workers that we represent, thinking about energy, thinking about uh, water, gender equality, education, health and sanitation, and uh, social services and social protection, of course. Next year, there's a lot of key goals for trade unions that are under review. In the next 12 months, how do you see trade unions preparing and, and, and how do we get our voice represented here and how do, we, how do we change? Because right now, we're not on par to achieve decent work by 2030. How do we change that, the path that we're on? Well, first thing I must say, uh, we should have all the global trade union movement involved on uh, this process. So I hope that the next 12 months can help us to strengthen our coordination and also to identify maybe not many but few objectives very clear that we need to stress in all the debate because as you mentioned it's true next year it will be our matters that are under discussion. My name is Andre Octadal. I'm an international secretary at UNIO, uh, the second largest trade union confederation in Norway. And we mostly represent uh, people that are uh, employed in the public sector, like nurses, teachers, police officers, researchers. This year, you're at the HLBF. Tell us a little bit about how UNIO has, has been engaging and engages with the whole sustainable development goals. First of all, we have been um, trying to establish, we have established a strategy and a, and, a, and a plan to make everything happen also in Norway because we feel that uh, to talk about the SDGs has been sort of a major thing when you're talking about aid and foreign policy. So it's a big challenge also to establish a national plan for implementation in Norway. So a little bit frankly speaking, I think it's a challenge that maybe Norway thinks sometimes that we are good at everything and want to tell about it abroad, but we also think that we have to do something ourselves. So we are actually here to get inspiration and see if other countries has, have developed those kinds of national plans for implementation. In the development of a national policy, has has there been a space there or i mean a national approach at least has there been, have trade unions been consulted to be honest uh it's a really well-established consultation um, form when it comes to climate change. We have established structures for climate, but when it comes to the SDGs as so, there are no specific consultations for the trade unions. So that's what we have asked for, uh, that there's, first of all should be made a national strategy and plan for Norwegian implementation and then we also have asked for congressional or parliamentary hearings to involve the public and the parliament more than, it, than the structures now allows. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the average of 195 news stories added to our site each day last week. 
Our top stories section included links to coverage of a planned strike at Amazon in Spain that has prompted a global call for a one-day boycott of the online retailer, the upheaval in public sector labor relations in New Zealand, and a new wave of violence and harassment directed at education union activists in Colombia. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. An Irish pharmacy chain was forced to close most of its shops as a wage dispute escalated into a walkout on Friday of last week, while archaeologists in Ireland continued their Dig for Decency campaign with another one-day warning strike. Fiat workers in Italy struck for a day to protest their employer buying a footballer's contract for a huge sum while workers were making sacrifices to keep the company afloat. Canadian salt miners blockaded their workplace to mark the start of the fourth month of their strike against concessions. The workers' blockade came down after two days and was replaced by farm equipment brought in by sympathetic farmers nearby. Australian meteorologists ended their strike this week. The walkout received lots of attention when weather forecasts started to appear with union messages embedded in them. And Holiday Island airports in Spain were described as filthy after cleaners struck for a living wage. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the protest march by thousands of Indian women fish harvesters after fish contaminated with industrial pollution were discovered, and a report assessing the gender barriers to promotion faced by Irish healthcare workers. The Health and Safety Newswire, rerun in cooperation with Hazards Magazine, carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the six firefighters seriously injured by their exposure to chemicals while fighting a fire in a foam factory in Pakistan. The terrible working conditions that are responsible for the high suicide rate among Indian workers who polish diamonds for jewels, and a union expose of hazards affecting both guards and prisoners in a Canadian in prison. Currently, Labor Start is running seven online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unions around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with How Can We Let This Go On? Everybody's talking about the changes in the pension And you really can't ignore it, it's really worth a mention It starts at the top with a five million bonus And it's really gotta stop you Gotta put the onus on the people with the vision The people with decision How can we work together when it's causing such division How can we let this go on, y'all? How can we let this go on? Just because a man sits in a big oval office Doesn't give the man the right to steal from the coffers The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer And the man in the middle, well, he's just a working whore how can we let this go on? How can we let this go on? Because it's only you and me. 
They talk defined contribution, defined benefit But the way that things are going, I might not see any of it All we asking for is real, all we asking for is fair We just a bunch of pawns in a game of truth or dare The government is crooked, they're on our side Once we shut the mother down, we be canceling their ride Then they just might notice, then they just might care When all we really wanted was to just be treated fair How can we let this go on, y'all? How can we let this go on? How can we let this go on, y'all? And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
Michael, eles não ligam pra gente. Looking out for yourself, your family.
Miss Etta James and uh, with the Dylan song you gotta serve somebody how true it is when we say I'm just concerned about me and my family and getting ours nothing else think of all the things you're saying yes to you're saying yes to institutionalized rape you're saying yes to a con game called capitalism you're saying yes to the continued oppression of homeless people you're saying yes to bigoted attacks on african-american people latinos muslims and other people of color You're saying yes to a white dictator. You're saying yes to the boss at your work. Doing whatever he wants. See if we can find our little saying. This is one I like to... I like to feature every week. 
Anyway, you've, you've all seen people who say, you know, there's some kind of an argument going on about politics or, or uh, some such issue. And someone always says, oh, I'm just not that into politics. Your boss is into politics. Did you know that? Well, no, I'm just not into it. But your boss is into it. Oh, yeah, my boss. Yeah, your boss is into it. Your landlord is into it. Landlord watches that. That supervisor's meeting passes on the word to other landlords. With this pro or con, can we kick people out whenever we want? Can we raise the rent as much as we want and and lie and say that our family's going to move into it so we can get those people out, those working people? Your landlord is into politics, believe me, or his agents are. And your insurance company is into politics. Every day, your boss, your landlord, and your insurance company use their political power to keep your pay low, to raise your rent, and deny you coverage. Maybe, in fact, not maybe, it's time to get into politics. I'm just not that into politics. Okay. I want to talk about the Great Upheaval. This is... uh, like 140 years ago, 141 years ago, when all of a sudden the American National Labor Union movement was born. Up to this point, there had been some organizing. The Knights of Labor was a pretty strong group among the among workers in the in the East had a complete uh, political and moral program. Um, Fell apart because it wasn't very successful in terms of, of strikes. But in 1877, something happened. The institutions... At that time, the big institution was the railroad. The railroad was the internet of its time. The railroad moved people and and goods around the country faster than anyone could ever ima- had even imagined. And of course, it needed workers, right? And so workers used the railroads in this in this. Um, instance to communicate so a strike that was centered in West Virginia Pennsylvania became a national strike listen up it's called the Great Railroad Strike in 1877 the economy was weak the Civil War caused immense damage to the country and its finances both the Confederate and the Union were firing on their own country which resulted in heavy damage to the buildings and property in the area. After the war, landowners with destruction to their property wanted the government to pay for the devastation, so the government had to pay for millions in wreckage. 
The government did not just have all this money, so they raised taxes. The raise in taxes took more money from companies, and so the companies had to have wage cuts in order to still turn a profit. The wage cuts hurt the workers the most because now their small pay was turned into barely enough money to live. To make matters worse, the workers weren't being listened to by the railroads, and their rights were being violated when the railroads didn't care about their inhumane working environments. The workers just weren't treated fairly, but one worker had had enough, and others shared his idea. By shutting down National Exchange, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 forced companies to take on the responsibility of guaranteeing workers' rights, and forced workers to continue to fight for their rights by forcing companies to support the rights of their workers and causing the birth of the modern labor movement, and soon a union. After the Civil War, there was a major growth in railroads, and abnormal amounts of funds were being put into their expansion. However, because railroads needed land grants for land to build tracks, and only the government had enough money to buy them, the government started running out of money, causing a crash in the economy. While the economy crashed, taxes were raised to help the government, which meant wages had to be cut in companies in order for them to not lose money after the company's taxes. Another reason why the railroads were expanding at such a rapid rate was because thousands of families wanted to move out west where there was plenty of land to settle and explore. But wagon trains were far too dangerous, so the western settlers preferred to use the railroads. With all of the eager customers, railroads were just as eager to lay tracks across the west, and that land had to be bought and paid for by the government, causing debt, causing more taxing, causing unfair wage cuts. The tectonic plates in the social world were shifting, and an uprise was most imminent in the railroad worker community. Along with wage cuts, workers were not respected, they were overworked, they had no union to back them up, and their work environment was unimaginably treacherous. The steam locomotives could explode from too much air pressure, and the rate of victims getting hit by trains was increasing rapidly. Finally, a worker rebelled. After the railroads had wage cuts, a rebellion took hold. Often, strikers would protest by forming a mob and throwing rocks at trains, and causing other forms of destruction to railroad equipment. The railroad owner's reaction was violent. They tried to get the military, but the government refused. Instead, local militias were sent to the strikers and slaughtered them. Militias were using guns to kill dozens at a time. The strikers didn't stand a chance. The sheer brutality of the militias was highlighted in the fact that they went by the motto, shoot to kill. Strikers who did not agree to leave the premise of the railroads, even when participating in a peaceful protest, were met with local militiamen armed with high-powered rifles aimed at their heads. That's when things got ugly. Strikers refused to leave, stayed true to their beliefs, and got any type of projectile they could find and threw it at the militiamen. The militiamen fired their rifles in rage, aiming at any striker they could hit. However, this method was proved ineffective in stopping strikers because the strikers knew that these massacres violated their rights of assembly. Using a strict construction of the Constitution, it directly violates their right to assembly, as at first they were just assembling and refusing to leave. But once their lives were threatened by men with rifles, they defended themselves with rocks.
Workers continued to riot and even burned down railroad buildings in many places, but most specifically in Maryland. Mr. Richard McKnight, historian of Steamtown, explains the riots and massacres in the Great Strike. So, nationwide impacts, would that be similar? Nationwide impacts were almost identical. I think they were actually worse because uh, this was the energy belt of uh, the Industrial Revolution. And even though the economy was going south, you still had to supply energy for the industries, you still had to provide heat for the cities, and anthracite coal was that. Uh, other places, yes, they had riots, they had to call the military in, um, made you know, what riot they had here in Scranton uh, look like a picnic. Other means of striking included workers jumping in front of trains to stop them, not letting any trains leave the stations, and never forgetting the rights they were fighting for so as to fuel them. The railroads denied the rights of the workers countless times, even in the simplest ways such as cutting wages and maintaining improper working environments. Wages were cut to an unreasonable amount, and the workers did not like that. However, despite their best efforts, the strike ended about 45 days after it started, when President Hayes sent larger groups of militias to capture strikers, again violating their rights. Though the strike failed, it was not in vain. This strike led to many other larger strikes, and it even helped to form a more perfect union. They really didn't have unions before the Great Strike, but this strike helped get the modern labor movement going, which not only got them unions, but also helped with the terrible working environments. The railroads never gave in though, despite all of the protesting. They just hired new people and without changing the working conditions or paying fair wages. However, the one major change that did come out of the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 was the modern labor movement, a movement that tried to fix the economic and health situations present in many jobs. Workers in the 1800s did not have a union to support them in conflicts with their employers. But the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 started the modern labor movement which created unions and gave workers the rights they deserved. Before the strike, working conditions for workers were terrible. Once they earned their money, they had to spend it at the company store and thus barely had enough to live on. However, railroads have changed quite a bit since the strike. Four-year veteran of SEPTA explained how railroads treat their workers today. Okay, you get the idea. That was a documentary done by a couple of college students. I wanted to hear this one. Let's listen to some of this one. As the new post-bellum railroads connected the country together, bringing all those new resources from the West and all the cotton from the South, they also created the first national organizations, the first national connections between workers all across the country. 
People were connected. They actually moved with the trains around the country, seeing workers all across the different railroads. They actually could speak, well, not speak, of course, but communicate through the telegraph wires that now sprawled everywhere that the railroad went. At the same time, these railroads were extraordinarily precarious enterprises. Vast sums had been spent to lay all that iron across the country, all of that steel. Railroads very frequently went bankrupt because to cover all those costs was difficult, especially when there was competition. And so even as the railroads boomed, wages were cut and cut and cut over those decades of the 1860s and the 1870s. All of this comes to a head in what is called the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, the very first moment when there is a burgeoning of an, a consciousness about workers and capital, of labor and capital, of wage workers and capital in America. These strikes were frequent. They happened every year, every two years. They flared up and they were pushed down by militias or uh, by the corporations themselves. This particular railroad strike didn't look any different than any other strike at the time. But it began in a place that could only exist when you have a network of railroads. Two miles west of Baltimore, at a junction through all the westbound trains that would travel through there. A choke point in this network that allowed, if that point to shut down, shutting down all the places that were connected. The size and scale of the railroad, the connectedness of the railroad, was also its Achilles heel. It was also the thing that could bring it down. If you controlled a choke point in this network, you controlled the entire system. The strike began on the Baltimore, Ohio Railroad, two miles west of Baltimore, and it quickly spread along the rail to West Virginia. Now, the company that controlled this, the B&O, they wanted just to replace the workers. There were other people who could run the trains instead. And at first, this was possible. They brought in replacement workers that were called scabs to run the trains instead. But as this process began, people began to think of themselves less as replacement workers than as fellow workers. The best way to understand this is the story of 28-year-old William Vandegrift who stood across the tracks in Martinsburg, West Virginia, trying to stop a train that was operated by replacement workers. As the train was coming out, he stood there trying to stop it, only to be shot three times by militiamen. His arm had to be amputated, and he died nine, year, nine days later, leaving behind a pregnant wife with no one to look after her, no way to earn money. After, after this incident, the B&O found it harder to find replacement workers. It was very difficult to convince them that it was okay to shoot their friends, to shoot fellow members of their community, to shoot people that would, but for the grace of God, be them. The Baltimore Sun described this willingness to use guns on Americans as the, quote, arrogance of capital. This was the recognition that there was a fundamental schism occurring in the second industrial revolution, in this moment when there was so much inequality, so much violence to protect property, to protect railroads, to protect those relationships between wage workers and owners. The Baltimore Sun described the workers as famished and wild, 
and declare for starvation rather than to have their people work for reduced wages. Better to starve outright, they say, than to die by slow starvation. One railroad worker explained the sympathy of Baltimore citizenry. They know what it is to bring up a family on 90 cents a day, to live on beans and cornmeal week in and week out, to run in debt at the stores until you cannot get trusted any longer, to see the wife breaking down under privation and stress, and the children growing up sharp and fierce like wolves day after day because they don't get enough to eat. But the relationship between the, the workers and the owners was not private. It was mediated always by the state. The state was always willing to intervene militarily with militias to suppress strikes in this period. The governor of West Virginia called upon President Hayes to, quote, suppress this insurrection. And so the president ordered federal troops to all along the lines of the BNO, starting in Baltimore, moving west, to stop this insurrection of the workers, to protect private property. Using the army to defend property looked very similar to using the army to suppress the South after the Civil War. And in fact, the same troops that were moved along the rails to maintain federal control during Reconstruction that were removed from the South also in 1877 were the same troops that were now used to occupy the railroad lines and rail depots to keep the workers from their rebellion. After the news of this spread, there were uprisings everywhere that not just the B&O went, but all railroads across the country, spreading across the many states. But even in Baltimore, where the strike had begun, those federal troops, now armed with artillery, were sent to protect the rail depot in Baltimore, that great port city. The bells that were to bring the different militias to, aug to aug act as auxiliaries to the army rung out at exactly the wrong time. The bells rang out at exactly when all of the Baltimore's factories and workers got off work. So instead of going home, they went to where the strike was happening. They went to protest the use of the army to intervene in private economic affairs, in their view. The workers in Baltimore and their uh, communities pulled out cobblestones from the street, throwing them at the army, who then shot into the crowd. This use of the army was central then in this new relationship of capital and labor. Everywhere that there were strikes along the railroads, whether on the Baltimore and Ohio or in the Pennsylvania Railroad or any of the other railroads in America, the army was used to put down the strikes. Armed militias bayoneted groups of people in Pittsburgh. But it was more than that. It was also special train cars outfitted with Gatling guns that were used to reconquer Pennsylvania along the lines running from east to west, retaking Altoona, Reading, and Pittsburgh. Similar stories could be talked about all across the country, New York, Ohio, even in Missouri. St. Louis even had a very brief general strike that overthrew all production in that town, creating what is called the St. Louis General Strike. Now, this is only a few years after the famous Paris Commune. And so this can be seen as a truly radical moment in American history, the flowering of a national consciousness with thousands of people going out, tens of thousands of people going out on strike all across the country, all at once, in an unorganized fashion. But it was that very lack of organization 
that eventually led to the strike's demise. Unorganized people cannot stand up to the organized power of the military, especially when it has Gatling guns. In the aftermath of the Great Strike, armories were set up in every major city in America to maintain this possibility of retaking it, doing urban pacification, using the state military and the federal army troops. It was only the military that had stood between the uprising and a general disruption of private property, of railroads all across the country. The Great Strike of 1877 marks a new chapter the movement from Reconstruction, which was predominantly about the reconstruction of the economy after the end of slavery, into a new chapter of the Second Industrial Revolution, when the primary question is that new relationship between labor and capital. Okay, two views of the Great As Railroad the new Strike. Post-Bellum uh, Railroads connected the country. Uh, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, which we celebrate that anniversary here in July. It happened in the summer. Something else we celebrate in July is the French Revolution, July 14th, the National Day of Independence in France. And that song, that, that celebration always entails performance of the French for the French national anthem, La Marseillaise. Now, La Marseillaise was a song. Let's see. We're going to play it here in a minute. La Marseillaise was... Um, a song, and here it is. We'll talk about it in a little bit, see where it's coming from. This is Mireille Mathieu singing La Marseillaise. That was uh, Michel Miguel singing La Marseillaise. Now there's a uh, 
Look it up. La Marseillaise was a song of the French Revolution. And um, it was written by um, troops, by a uh, soldier who was uh, on his way to fight the army of the Republic, the French Republic against the monarchist invaders from Austria and Germany. The song was written in 1792 by Claude-Joseph Rouget de Lille in Strasbourg after the declaration of war by France against Austria and was originally titled War Song for the Rhine Army. Marciaz is a revolutionary song, an anthem to freedom. A patriotic call to mobilize all the citizens and an exhortation to fight against tyranny and foreign invasion. The song acquired its nickname after being sung in Paris by volunteers from Marseille marching to the capital. Okay. The song is the first example of a European march. It's uh, wide, widespread use as a song of revolution and incorporation into many pieces of classical and popular music. And the lyrics are, are this. Arise, children of the fatherland, la patrie. The day of glory has arrived. Against us, tyranny's bloody standard is raised. Do you hear in the courtside the roar of those ferocious soldiers? They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons and your women. These are the forces of reaction, the army. To arms, citizens, form your battalion. March, march, let an imp and let their impure blood flow in our sewers. Um, I want to play a portion of the Marcias from the movie uh, Casablanca because there's a scene in Casablanca where the uh, German troops are singing uh, one of their marching songs and let's see just play a little music little French there. This is from the movie Casablanca, and the scene, of course, is in Rick's restaurant. Uh, during World War II, the Germans have a presence... They're singing their song at the bar and then 
see what happens. You ever- the um, point is Paul Henreid. the German officer gets pissy after this uh, demonstration by the uh, French people in the bar and orders the bar closed which he, he has the power to do and does La Marseillaise the Song of France happy happy um, Bastille Day to all French people. The Bastille was a prison in Paris where political um, and other criminals were kept. People who'd been convicted of a crime. And uh, the crowd in Paris, which had organized sort of... out of nowhere, you know, as a protest against taxes and poverty. Uh, the crowd broke into the, the Bastille. It would be like San Quentin or um, Kansas, a big federal prison in Kansas, which I get Leavenworth. It would be at the at the time when they broke in. However, there were only a few uh, prisoners there, but for a long time the Bastille had been the center where prisoners were taken and tortured. Happy Bastille Day! 
Okay, Labor and Love Radio, the labor beat. What have we got? We've got um, Vermont nurses go red for med. This is socialistworker.org. With nurses going on a two-day strike at Vermont's biggest hospital, Nolan Rampey writes from Burlington on some of the main issues involved, including how managers draw fat checks while overseeing dangerous staff shortages. Some 1,800 nurses at the University of Vermont Medical Center are set to begin a two-day strike starting Thursday in what will be one of the state's most significant labor actions in decades. The main demands of the nurses are staff, are safe staffing levels, and competitive wages needed to recruit and retain a well-trained, competent staff. The union is demanding a 24% increase in salaries over three years. Management has offered raises ranging from 7 to 14%, but that higher number includes longevity increases that nurses with less seniority already receive. The university claims it can't afford to pay nurses the prevailing wage. Hospital President Eileen Whelan announced that administrators have found the funds to bring in 600 replacement nurses to scab on the strike. Ain't that the way it goes? We can't find any money to pay you, to respect you, to pay you a living wage, but we can find money to pay for scabs. And that's what we're going to do. So let's keep our eye on that. The university is a flag. Ship Hospital of the University of Vermont Medical Network, network of six hospitals throughout Vermont and upstate New York. Over the past several years, it has generated hundreds of millions of dollars in profits and currently has an operating budget of $1.2 million. According to CFO Todd Keating, the hospital has enough cash on hand to operate without any incoming revenue for 220 days. So, <laughs> they, they can't pay their workers, though. Okay, so check out Socialist Workers and the Striking Nurses. Labor and Love Radio. Union busting is not a Bay Area value. This is local. This is KQED. Right around the corner from us here at Mutiny Radio. By the way, we're coming to you this morning from Mutiny Radio, mutinyradio.fm. We have a studio on the corner of 21st and Florida a studio, not only a radio studio, but a performance center, the center of the underground comedy movement in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, where you can come and take a class. You can 
try out your routines and your jokes on a live audience who will criticize you constructively, who will help you sharpen your chops. All kinds of other things go on here. Right now we have an art installation by one of our DJs, Scott O. Walker. Um, there are constant, you know, live shows here, comedy, video. It's a performance space. You can come in and rent it by the hour for your own event. Or you can, we have openings that, uh, on our weekly calendar for programmers. Come on in and become a programmer. Exercise your voice. At any rate, back to KQED. Workers at KQED have brought Bay Area quality radio and television for over 60 years. During that time, these workers have been represented by NABETCWA, National Association of Broadcast Employees, something like that. Now KQED is union busting urging members to resign from the union. They will help you do that. Moving work away from the union to non-union workers. Help support these workers, their family, and their right to have a union with job security. KQED now makes less than 30 hours per year of local television with their over $74 million annual budget. Tell KQED to stop union busting. Sign up here. Okay, you can look for that on the Labor and Love radio post, or it's under the title NABETCWA Local 51. Okay, one more now. Building power. After Janice. Janice, as you know, is a recent uh, Supreme Court decision. Until now, public sector union contracts couldn't legally require employees to belong to the union that represent them. They could require them to pay a fee, somewhat less than full dues instead of joining. The fee-payer non-members saved some money and lost the chance to have anything to say about the union. The union was still bound by law to represent them in bargaining or if they got into trouble. After Janice, non-members will no longer have to pay these agency fees. That ups the incentive to quit the union. It's predicted to decimate union treasuries, not to mention solidarity. Our prescription. What can unions do? Be democratic. We need to exponentially expand the number of us who have the skills, confidence, and authorities to be the union. Leaders should welcome, not begrudge, rank-and-file initi initiative. In fact, they should help it happen. Fight the boss. People will join a union when they see that winning fights matters. 
Getting into the right fights and winning some of them is just as important to your union's post-Janus survival as asking people to sign a membership card. Tune up the heat. To win big fights takes more than action and passion. It takes a plan and takes time. A series of gradually increasing actions, such as a contract campaign, aims maximum pressure at your target and builds members' confidence and unity along the way. Ask people to join. They won't join if you don't ask. Asking them to become members should become a natural step in your everyday organizing. Not a separate project that sucks energy from other campaigns. Count noses. Create maps and charts to track participation. Learn how to recognize a natural leader. And don't go it alone. Shrinking unions can't afford to isolate themselves. Why would we want to? Our interests are the public's interests. Okay, there's one more reason not to give up hope in open shop America. We can't afford to. So, labor notes, homepage. Let's have some music here. How does that mean we still do play music?
You do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, Mr. poor Trump, and white, barely you. daring to breathe or hachew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe big as a Frisco seal and a head in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach du, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two so I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eeh, 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 eeh. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my tarok pack and my tarok pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygoo and your neat moustache and your Aryan eye, bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman, oh you, not God but a swastika, so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, in the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look and a love of the rack and the screw, and I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root, the voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year, seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart, and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through.
That was uh, Lydia Mendoza singing Malambre, singing, among other things, uh, about a young girl being raped in a royal Malambre. Literally translated as bad man, but it might be more like son of a bitch or, or things like that. Lydia Mendoza was born... In 1916, guitarist and singer of Tejano Conjunto and traditional Mexican-American music. She is known as La Londra de la Frontera, the lark of the border. Lydia Mendoza In the 1930s, she came to the attention of Manuel J. Cortez. Let's start off again here. She was born in Houston, Texas. She learned to sing and play stringed instruments from her mother and grandmother. And um, Lydia Mendoza started performing in the 1930s. And uh, Malombre became an overnight success and led to an intensive schedule of touring and recording. And it was Lydia Mendoza who would travel around the work camps of migrant workers and others at the border, around the border, and uh, perform for them. So this song, Malombre, is one of her biggest hits. Lydia Mendoza. Okay, so 
We're getting short on time here. This is something I never thought would happen. This is something written by Emma Goldman in 1909 in her magazine, Mother Earth. And she copies the Declaration of Independence. Let's read a little bit of it. When in the course of human development, existing institutions prove inadequate to the needs of man, when they serve mainly to enslave, rob, and oppress mankind, the people have the eternal right to rebel against and overthrow these institutions. The mere fact that these forces inimical to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are legalized by statute laws, sanctified by defined right, divine rights, and enforced by political power, in no way justifies their continued existence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all human beings, irrespective of race, color, or sex, are born with the equal rights to share at the table of life, that to secure this right there must be established among men economic, social, and political freedom. We hold further that government exists but to maintain special privilege and property rights that it coerces man into submission and therefore robs him and her of dignity, self-respect, and life. Emma Goldman and her version of the Declaration of Independence, a modern version of the Declaration of Independence. 11.45 now. Um, play one more thing. All right. From Linda Tillery. No matter what happens, don't let nobody get your spirit down. You might slip. You might slide. You might stumble and fall by the roadside. each other, that's what love is for, don't you let, let nobody drag your spirit down, Tie your spirit let down.
Okay, time to go. This is the B signing off, Labor and Love Radio. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Never let anyone into your heart who's a friend of labor. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. What do we do? Janice Pass. Unions are hitting hard times. What do we do? When everything seems to be falling apart, we dance. Say something to her really loud. Okay. Solina. Sylvia, my soulmate. The whole fam. Vita Lou makes me proud to be a dad. Dance. of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, 
Listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the weekly review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Well, hello, boys and girls. You know what a password is. That's a secret word that soldiers would use to get past the sentry and up to the front. Well, here's a password that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. And the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skincare. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. There are more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base ten times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you practically feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body-nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join thegreenarmy.com.
Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, We've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco, and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special, a shot of bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shout. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Oh, yeah. It goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Coming at these bitches and all these snitches hitting switches going back to riches. Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. Why 
their upper parts. They are bobolinks, and their bubbling banjo-like songs greet our ears with the exuberance of college boys.